Welcome to the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast for another example of astronomy and astronomy-related misconceptions, mistakes, half-truths, and conspiracies. Actually, in this episode, really just conspiracies. My name is Stuart Robbins, and this is episode 87 for the ultimate 3rd of September 2013. The topic I'm going to talk about today is not typical for this podcast, and it really has nothing to do with astronomy, geology, or physics. Rather, it's my own observations on the birth of multiple mini-conspiracies and where some people place priorities during a crisis. The claim for this episode is that the government is gonna getcha. Disasters tend not to hit home until, well, until they hit your home. To recap for those just joining the show, I live in Colorado. Until August of this year, I lived in Boulder, Colorado. In August, I moved to Lyons, Colorado. If you've never heard of it, you haven't really been listening to the news for the last few weeks, but I'll try to describe it geographically. Colorado is one of those western states that's a rectangle. Denver is the state capital, and it's pretty much at the center of the state. It has a population of about 640,000 people. It's known as the Mile High City because its elevation is just about 5,280 feet, or one mile above sea level. Boulder is a quaint hippie-type town that's about a half-hour drive northwest of Denver, and it's around 5,450 feet above sea level, or about 50 meters above Denver. Population is around 90,000, with another 30,000 undergraduates when school is in session. A further half-hour drive north-northwest of Boulder is the small town of Lyons, population 2,000 in the town itself, more in the outlying unincorporated areas. It's pretty much as far northwest as you can get without actually starting to drive into the Rocky Mountains. Its elevation is just slightly below boulders. If you were to drive west-northwest, another half hour or so, you would reach Estes Park, a tourist town, population 6,000, and it's around 7,500 feet above sea level. So, yeah, you really start to climb into the mountains as you go further west. Another half hour west, and you get to Rocky Mountain National Park. Lyons proper is flat and level, and it has a river that runs through the middle of it. I moved northwest of Lyons, up into the mountains. The country road that you turn onto is roughly 200 feet above Lyons, and then you climb another 500 feet on a dirt road up to the house. Colorado could broadly be summarized as a desert-type climate with rolling hills and tall mountains, but the state only averages 17 inches, or about 43 centimeters, of rain per year. We hadn't gotten much rain at all this year. We were in somewhat drought-like conditions, even for Colorado. And then, around the evening of September 11th, it started to rain. And rain, and rain, and rain. Estimates are that over the next few days, we got something like 15 to 20 inches of rain, or nearly half a meter, all of our rain for one year in just a few days. The ground quickly saturated and it couldn't hold any more water. Small earthen dams that had been built in small resort properties in the mountains around me began to burst, meaning that all the water was no longer collected or stopped in any way, it just flowed and flowed, and flowed, and flowed. I live in a house with two housemates. One got up around 6.30 to get ready to leave for work. 
The other got up around 7 o'clock. I was still in bed. I was in bed reading some weird emails around 8 o'clock in the morning about lots of rain in Boulder and that one of my jobs was considering closing because of all the rain. Then, a bit later, the University of Colorado campus, my other job, was also closing for the day due to rain. At about that time, the housemate who had left at 7 o'clock came back and said he was here for the day. The other one was as well. Why? I'd asked. I was told to look out the window, down the hill. What was normally a dry gully, also known as the Little Thompson River, was about 300 feet or 100 meters wide. It had completely washed out the only way off of our little mountain, trapping about 50 to 100 households. Over the course of the day, the water continued to rise, the rain continued to come down, and the news was showing stories of the same thing happening all over the area. At 1.55 p.m., we lost power. At 1.56 p.m., the conspiracy started. The first thing to happen was that we shut off portable phones and laptops and the desktop computers that were on uninterruptible power supplies, or UPSs for short. Next was that containers were set out on the deck to collect water. Lanterns were brought up in the basement. Frantic cleaning, for some reason, of dirty dishes from the dishwasher were out on the deck, and the rain. Accounting of all food and fuel commenced. I still had some internet on my iPad because I have the Verizon chip in it, so I was reading the news. Talk about evacuations was in the news, but there was a resounding, if they try to take me, I'm not going out alive, from one of the housemates. That was when I realized that I was watching how conspiracy theories develop around severe events. I want to be very clear before I go any further that throughout this, I was fine. We had enough food in the house for several months. It might not have tasted great when we were down to eating dried Tabasco peppers and pecans, but we had food. We also had plenty of gas for the stove for several months and plenty of water in the cistern because we were on well water anyway. And on Sunday, we collected another 65 gallons of rainwater off the deck by putting out lots and lots and lots of clean buckets. The house was 500 feet from the river at nearly 6,300 feet elevation, so we were in no danger of flooding. We suffered a lot less than most people. That's not meant at all to minimize the devastation of other people's homes. I have many friends and co-workers who have hundreds of thousands of dollars of damage to their homes due to flooding or stuff simply being washed away. The ground under the firehouse down the hill was simply swept away, and there is no firehouse anymore after it almost collapsed into the river. But there are other podcasts to discuss that, and news outlets having a field day showing you all the devastation porn that they think gets ratings. The rest of this podcast is about how the roughly 20 or so people that I interacted with, trapped on this side of the river with me, reacted, and how the conspiracies came about, and what some of them consider to be priorities. One of the first conspiracies, and by far the largest to come up, was FEMA camps and gun confiscation, because that's what happened during Katrina, as in Hurricane Katrina in 2005 in New Orleans. This idea of forced evacuation into a FEMA camp and gun confiscation was very popular with most people I talked with up here, and it was very popular with one of the housemates. It was literally that first day, Thursday, September 12th, that we started to hear the first evacuations, or hear about the first evacuations, not only on the television news before we lost power, but also via the news that I was reading on my iPad. 
The next day, Friday, when we started to see the Black Hawk and Chinook helicopters flying overhead, did not help to calm some people's fears of forced relocation to a FEMA camp. Remarks about, Imagine a dozen of those Black Hawks coming towards you with missiles loaded, made that fairly obvious. At first, I thought it was just worry about forced evacuation. I mean, obviously nobody likes to be removed from their home, whether voluntary or mandatory. I honestly didn't think that that would happen, because other than being trapped, at least in this house, we were fine for weeks or even months, even without electricity. Mandatory evacuations were for those people who were absolutely trapped and didn't have any supplies. But the people around me kept talking about it every single time a helicopter flew overhead. They also took lots of pictures of the helicopters. There was even some neighbor against neighbor going on. People up here are generally friendly, but some of them work in an official capacity, like being the fire chief for the immediate area of the fire station that's no longer on ground. The fire chief would say one thing, and then go on about his business, and people would turn around and say that we couldn't trust him because he was just being told disinformation that was meant to keep us in the dark. This was as soon as the second day, Friday, when a bunch of us sojourned down the mountain to look at the washed-out road and destroyed firehouse. Even less than 24 hours later, there was very much a us-versus-them mentality. People were already saying that they heard different things from different people in some sort of official capacity. Consequently, it was all called disinformation designed to keep us in the dark, and that we were being lied to. It wasn't that we were in a crisis situation, and information was out of date almost as soon as it was determined, and that some people had older information than others. In other words, disparate information meant that it was all disinformation that we were being intentionally lied to about. When we got to September 14th, Saturday, the National Guard showed up in seven covered personnel carriers, and things started to get a bit more crazy. When the housemates announced, the stormtroopers are here, I decided to do this episode. The so-called stormtroopers made it across the river via the very temporary bridge that some folks up here had managed to build with the help of a nearby quarry and lots of heavy equipment. As soon as they made it across, one of the housemates went to his room and came back with a 45 pistol on his belt, arms crossed. When I asked him if he really thought the National Guard was going to try to take him or his guns, he said that that's what they did during Katrina. I asked him if he really believed all the conspiracy theories. He told me to look it up, that there's a video of police officers going door-to-door confiscating guns in the wake of Hurricane Katrina, including them prying them out of the hands of an 87-year-old woman. I told him to warn me, because I was going to hide in a closet. Bloodstains are very hard to get out of clothing. In preparation for this episode, I did some more research into the issue, and apparently this did happen. To quote Wikipedia, A September 8th citywide order by New Orleans Police Superintendent Eddie Compass to local police, U.S. Army National Guard soldiers, and deputy U.S. Marshals to confiscate all civilian-held firearms. Quote, No one will be able to be armed, end quote, Compass said. Quote, guns will be taken, only law enforcement will be allowed to have guns, end quote. Seizures were carried out without warrant, and in some cases with excessive force. One instance captured on film involved 58-year-old New Orleans residents Patricia Connie. Connie stayed behind in her well-provisioned home and had an old revolver for protection. 
A group of police entered the house, and when she refused to surrender her revolver, she was tackled and it was removed by force. Connie's shoulder was fractured, and she was taken into police custody for failing to surrender her firearm. End the quote from Wikipedia. However, on June 8th, 2006, Louisiana House Bill 760 that prohibited confiscation of firearms in a state of emergency unless it was pursuant to the investigation of a crime was signed into law. Since then, 21 other states have signed similar bills into law. And on October 9th, 2006, President Bush signed into law the Disaster Recovery Personal Protection Act of 2006, which is a federal law prohibiting the seizure of lawfully held firearms during an emergency. Though, if you choose to evacuate with someone, you could be required to surrender it under the provision that surrender could be required, quote, as a condition for entry into any mode of transportation used for rescue or evacuation. Makes sense, you wouldn't want a trigger-happy person with a gun on a helicopter during an evacuation. But they can't just go door-to-door taking your guns, at least not since October 9th, 2006. On Sunday the 15th, a National Guard person actually did come to our door, in the rain, and I'm not quite sure why it took them an extra day to go door-to-door. One of the housemates, the one who actually owned the house, met him. He said that it was just him in the house, and there was no damage except a bit of leak in the roof, and that we had plenty of supplies, or he had plenty of supplies. We, or or he, was asked to evacuate, but told that it was completely voluntary. If he didn't, the National Guard folks would probably not be back, and services may not return for 30 days or more. We'd be on our own, and he wanted to make that clear, but also clear that it was a voluntary evacuation. The other housemate later thanked the owner for saying it was only him, because that way, when they came to forcefully remove us, they would only think there was one person. After the National Guard person left, the other housemate and I got into a bit of an argument where I was called a crazy optimist and I called him a crazy pessimist. He now owes me $20. I figured that roads would be fixed enough so that we could at least get out within a few weeks, and that we would have power back maybe within two weeks, but by Halloween or 45 days away at the absolute latest. He was trying to figure out, meanwhile, if his lantern fuel would last through January. He figured that the utility companies didn't care about us. We pay a mandatory $22.50 connection fee per month, regardless of if we have power, and that they would take their sweet time fixing things. And Rhodes? They wanted to keep us helpless. I said we would see. He ended up hitching a ride to town on Tuesday, about noon, so that he could go to work and would just stay with his girlfriend in Denver. He left a few hours before we found out that we could get passes to drive out and back, and two days before we got power restored. Even after we were able to get out, there was more conspiracy. We knew that we could leave, but that it was a one-way road. If we left, we would not be able to get back. For how long, we didn't know. I was starting to make plans on who I could stay with in Boulder or Denver if I had to leave for work. Once our bridge was fixed, amazingly in only three days, by some very dedicated private citizens who had a bunch of heavy equipment, We were able to get down the mountain, across the bridge, and down the county road, and theoretically anywhere else. While Lyons itself had suffered from flooding, the main street that we would use to drive on to get to anywhere else was fine. But we weren't quote-unquote allowed out because of what they 
claimed to be safety concerns. The official statement was that everything was still dangerous and had to be inspected. Then, in true disinformation fashion, the claim changed, and it was now that utility and construction and repair crews had to do their job and that we'd be in the way. This was twisted by those with a conspiracy mindset up here into two different things. First was that the obvious disinformation because they apparently couldn't agree on what lie to tell us. And second was that we were being punished for not evacuating, that they don't want us to be out there, they want to just keep us trapped. Soon after, on Tuesday, five days after the flooding had really started, we were actually allowed out. We could drive about eight miles down the road to where they had been evacuating residents, in a church, and pick up a pass that would allow us to travel into and out of Lyons once a day and only during daylight hours. After all, during the dark, that's when the vampires are out. I posted to Facebook that I was headed to get my pass and that if people didn't hear back from me, it was because it was a trap and that I was really in a FEMA camp. Since you're hearing this, no, it was not a trap. But, of course, in order to get our pass, we had to show ID, prove where we lived, and show up in person. Also, you had to give all that information if you wanted to register with FEMA for any payment due to damage that insurance wouldn't cover. Of course, if you were a really big conspiracy theorist, then you would say that someone caused all of these floods and they're going to cause them in other states just to get everybody to register with FEMA. Anyway, moving on, the conspiracy continued. It now morphed from, we're being trapped up here even though the roads are fine, to something like, they're just trying to exert control over our every movement. And back to the whole disinformation thing, clearly the roads looked fine to travel on, because they were letting us travel on them, so it was just disinformation that they had to be fixed. In reality, the roads that we travel on are, for the most part, fine. But they all still have to be inspected by engineers to make sure that they really are fine. What looks okay on top may have had some of its foundation eroded and is just waiting to collapse, as one road that I saw nearby and took photos of actually is. Repair, construction, and utilities crews all are rushing to reconnect and fix everything before it gets too cold to do so in a month or two. Every single car that drives by means they have to be more cautious, pause a little bit longer, or in some cases, stop what they're doing and move so the car can get by. Limiting travel, per the official story, really makes sense. But it's not hard to see how people who already have a conspiracy mindset will leap to their conclusions. On top of all of that they-say-we-say say stuff, there were a few more interesting characters I met up on the hill. Well, actually two, primarily. One was fairly harmless, and since her husband was leading the team that rebuilt our bridge across the river, and a levy to narrow the river to make everything work, I didn't really say anything. On the third night of no power, Saturday, we had a lot of people over for a freezer grill-out party, because I had just been to Costco and had seven pounds of chicken breast, and other guys had a pound or two of fish and two steaks, all in the freezer, all needing to be eaten that night or thrown out. The next day, they had several people at their house for the same thing, even though they had a generator. The two housemates and I were among the first to arrive, and we were shown around their really neat house. The wife showed us around because the husband was still working on the bridge. The tour ended near her room, where she does crystal work, incense and aromatherapy, and hypnotherapy. 
I sighed silently and went back downstairs after the tour ended. What really got me, though, was when she started talking during dinner about how we were trapped up here, and even if we were to leave, we wouldn't be allowed back. She was incensed about how they might be okay about going to get necessary things like water or basic food, but that all the food was GMO and that we couldn't go to natural food stores, and also we wouldn't be able to get our supplements from the nutrition or whole or organic food stores. I remained fairly silent. The second gentleman who was an interesting character is what I term every conspiracy guy, because he seemed to believe every conspiracy. I first overheard him at our freezer grill-out party when he was talking with a group of people explaining that he was a Christian scientist. Why? Because doctors are brainwashed by Big Pharma and the medical establishment from day one just to toe the party line and that they don't really have our best interests in mind. When he asked the rhetorical, am I right? I was on my way back to cook more chicken and chose not to respond. He went on to talk about how GMOs are killing us and to not even get him started on 9-11. At the party the next night, he had a ball talking about GMO foods with the crystal-slash-aroma-slash-hypnotherapy lady. On Tuesday, two nights later, the remaining housemate and I had managed to borrow a 1.75 kilowatt generator, enough to charge all the miscellaneous devices like phones and cameras and laptops, start cooling a mini refrigerator, and even run my desktop computer for a few hours. But we couldn't get the generator started. The housemate went up the hill to find a big, strong man to help, and every conspiracy guy answered the call. We finally got it running in exchange for him using our Wi-Fi for a bit. Unfortunately, two nights earlier, he realized that we were intelligent, me being a geophysicist and the other housemate being a rocket scientist. And, as intelligent people, we must, of course, believe the conspiracies. The phrase, but you're so smart, how could you possibly believe the official story, was bandied about more than once. Rather than be drawn in, though the housemate wasn't quite so lucky or perhaps didn't know where it was going, I opted to clean the refrigerator for the next half hour or hour or so while listening to them argue. It started with the September 11th, 2001 terrorist attacks, and how he's in a construction and there's no expletive way that those towers could have fallen the way they did from those planes. And what about Building 7? I corrected the housemate's response that the steel melted with it didn't melt, it just weakened. Like, if you have spaghetti that's uncooked, it's still strong. Flash cook it for a minute, it's weaker, but still not melted or mush. So it's that's what's happened. Since I knew it would go on and on and on, I then asked him, what it would take for him to not believe the conspiracy, what specifically needed to be explained. Otherwise, we could just go back and forth forever, even though I hadn't really participated up to that point. I think he thought that that meant that I was engaging because his response started with, good, and then agreeing with me that we needed to talk specifics. So he said that he needed to know why the towers fell that way that they did, but then he went right back to me realizing that there was no point in arguing with him because he followed that up immediately with, because there's no way that they can fall the way they did just from the airplanes. The conversation then went back to me cleaning the refrigerator while he continued to talk about the New World Order and how the Rothschilds and the Rockefellers and the Morgans own everything and they're the power behind the power. They killed JFK. They're trying to destroy the American dollar. They financed both sides of World War II. And then he got into Tesla and how Tesla was going to provide free energy to everyone, but he was shut down by J.P. Morgan. 
listening to him was sort of like listening to several hours of Coast to Coast AM, but a very condensed version. Now I'm going to wrap up this rather different episode by stating what I've heard Dr. Steve Novella state a few times, but something that you really don't realize until you're actually in that situation yourself. And that's how conspiracies can get started when they surround a non-ordinary, crisis-type situation. It's that there's just so much information going around, and it's changing so quickly as more and more data are gathered, that anyone who already has any sort of natural distrust or dislike for the government or official sources of information can very easily twist that into them lying to you or us. For example, we were told by the National Guard that we would probably not have power for over a month, but then it came back one week and three hours after we lost it. Was that disinformation spread out by the National Guard trying to get us to leave so they could sweep the house and take our guns? No. It was a pessimistic estimate by the power company who hadn't been able to survey what the damage was and didn't know when they would be able to even get their personnel or equipment to the various sites to survey and repair. I was told so many different things by so many different sources and read so many versions and rumors that spread so quickly that if I weren't already aware of how conspiracies develop, I could very easily have fallen prey to it just like many others. But in addition to that, I learned how some people act and argue their own pseudoscience or conspiracies. I especially found it interesting that there was an assumption that, because one is intelligent, there's no way that they should believe the official story and must believe the conspiracy. And I have to say that the housemate that was all freaked out about gun confiscation is not stupid. He's fairly intelligent and works in a technical field. But as we find out so often in skepticism, being smart does not correlate with how immune you may or may not be to conspiracies. Critical thinking is independent of intelligence, and requires one to be constantly vigilant to decide if the most likely explanation is the official story or something else. It's not always the official story, but neither is it always the conspiracy. With all of that in mind, and the fact that I just got power back two days ago, this episode is being cut short. I am co-leading a graduate seminar to Yellowstone National Park and the Grand Tetons for a week that covers October 1st, so the next episode may be out either early or late, depending on if I get it done before I leave. Regardless, the episode on whether Mars Moon Phobos is hollow will show a date of October 1st. And if you have an idea for the puzzler for it, please send it in. That wraps up this topic on the 87th edition of the Exposing Pseudo-Astronomy podcast. Thank you for listening, and I hope that you enjoyed it and learned a little at the same time. Or, you know, just had an interesting time. For more information about this podcast, please visit the website at podcast.sgrdesign.net. If you have any feedback, you can use the feedback form on the website or send an email directly to podcast at, as opposed to dot, sgrdesign.net. You can also leave a comment on the page for this episode on the website, on my blog post for the episode, or the Facebook page for the podcast. You can also tweet me, at PseudoAstro. I do read every message and appreciate the feedback. If you have suggestions for topics, please feel free to make them. 
Also, please write a review and rate this podcast on iTunes or your podcast website or service of choice. Every little bit helps. Every single review, every single rating helps boost me in other ratings, even if the rating was kind of mediocre. So go ahead and do it. That way I don't have to beg. 